Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. It's great to be on the air, and hard to believe it's been um, close to five days since I was on the air with you all last. But I'm sure many of you all were wondering, would Kirk Monroe be back on the air at some point again soon? And that answer is a definitive yes. However, I wanted to give you all, my uh, faithful listeners, enough time to get caught up on uh, the recent series that was uh, discussed being um, uh, Jack Jewett and his um, ride not only to have saved Virginia, but the uh, American Revolution itself by Judy Bloodgood uh, Bander. And nonetheless, I was very pleased to um, see just how many of you all uh, were interested in that series and the only reason I say that is because most people out there probably don't know about that particular story. But thanks to you all, my fellow uh, faithful listeners, you all can uh, spread the word to um, many other people out there, not only about Anchor Podcasts, but by going on Anchor Podcast, that those individuals will be able to um, learn uh, an assortment of uh, topics that they may already have knowledge on, but don't, um, but weren't um, properly told uh, the real story behind uh, the events that have been uh, discussed throughout um, the time that I've been podcasting since uh, June of 2020. Hard to believe that in uh, two months from now that'll mark uh, two years. Where has the time gone? But I must say that uh, since that time. Um, you all have been uh, by my side, and I thank you all uh, from the bottom of my heart, because uh, with the way things are in the world these days, we need to um, listen to stuff that's relevant. And while, yes, it may be unpleasant, we still need to learn about it, but we need to learn about it in a more uh, formal manner. That is, a manner that is um, educational, a manner that... Um, that is relevant, where the information that is being brought before you all um, has a significant meaning, but it's of significant importance to where to where uh, we can learn from the past and make sure that if there were tragic uh, misfortunes that did occur, that we do everything in our power to uh, n not repeat um, previous um, mistakes. Of course, it seems like the conflict in the Ukraine, not just in the Ukraine, but Russia's actions towards its neighbor uh, being Ukraine, from what I've seen on television, yes, they are of uh, those actions or war acts that have been uh, committed are definitely um, war crime related. Um, just seeing pictures of what has taken place in the Ukraine and having looked at pictures through uh, various books and magazines or even TV documentaries on World War II, uh, especially pertaining to the Holocaust, there are some similarities. Maybe not in every facet, but I do see similarities that, um, that are haunting. And there again, it's a tragic reminder that um, that history is repeating itself, and it's repeating itself for the wrong reasons. And, you know, I'm not trying to sound political here, but it seems as though there are people in the world who don't, um, who have a hard time uh, wanting to uh, realize that, hey, 
the atrocities from World War II, that yes, okay, they happened, but yet we have people out there in some nations around the world that still commit these kinds of atrocities, like persecution on a mass scale level, and don't uh, care to under and don't care to uh, realize what repercussions their actions bring. So, so you know, we just have to be reminded that there are people in the world who um, who don't care about their actions, and they don't realize that their actions alone have um, countless negative uh, impacts on not only on the rest of the world but amongst those whom are being persecuted at uh, at another ruler's uh, expense. Well, many of you all are probably wondering now, uh, where does the time machine take us to in this next series? Well, that's a good question. I was uh, wrangling with a little bit of it uh, for the last couple of days. And what I mean by wrangling is that I was, um, in a sense, maybe stuck between a rock and a hard place or just um, having to take a few books and decide for myself which where to go next. In other words, yes, I took a couple of books and I um, read through, um, I skimmed through st through information. I read um, a number of pages and then I uh, came to a conclusion as to where to go next. I don't think it would have made a difference where I would have uh, chosen, but I had to make a decision. So I'm not going to mention the title of our series just yet, but I will uh, mention the title of our next book discussion before this uh, podcast segment is over. However, it will involve an American, and that is a, a famous American individual, and it will involve um, us um, going through many twists and turns as to how America evolved thanks to a particular invention by a man whom, in my opinion, was at the right place at the right time. And while this invention was revolutionary for its time, the one thing we will have to um, remind ourselves is the following, is that it's one thing to invent something, but it's how far we go with our invention. In other words, if you invent something... Should you all should you consider having a boundary with it? You know, inventions might be are a good thing, but if inventions go unchecked, sometimes the actions uh, may not yield um, proper or I should say relevant results. So let's start with our prologue to this new um, book series, book topic series, and before I uh, wrap up the uh, prologue. I will uh, tell you all the uh, title of this uh, book. I figure if I tell you tell you it all now, in terms of the title, then some of you are probably wondering why even have a prologue. Well, let's uh, get this show on the road. Let's keep our uh, seatbelts fastened, and here we go. Mankind's use for boats. Did you hear that, folks? Boats. Folks, uh, where... You know, boats, when we see boats, where are they usually on? Water. So mankind's use for boats dates as far back as 8,000 years ago. 
Isn't that something to think mankind's use for boats can be traced as far back as 8,000 years ago? Long before all of us ever um, came along. However, uh, prior to famous European voyage expeditions led by uh, famous Europeans uh, such as Christopher Columbus, Ferdinand Magellan, Hernando um, de Soto, to Henry Hudson, uh, to name a few of the many uh, prominent uh, European explorers of their, of their time, prior to uh, their expeditions uh, into the New World, and when I think of the New World, what do we think of, folks? North and South America. Because, you know, remember, we did have uh, European explorers who explored not only North America, but also explored South America. So prior to the expeditions led by, these, um, by some of these uh, famous European individuals whose names I mentioned a moment ago, the ancient Egyptians are the ones who must be remembered as first of their kind to have built the earliest known boats. Did you hear that, folks? The ancient Egyptians were the ones that um, are to be credited with building the first known uh, boats that, it, that uh, existed. So they were well, well ahead of the Europeans. It would be fair to say that the ancient Egyptians did not construct their boats from modern-day um, natural resources like steel and aluminum. So if the ancient Egyptians didn't have access to natural res resources like steel and aluminum, how would they have gone about building the first known boats? The ancient Egyptians used a native plant known as papyrus. And if any of you aren't sure how to spell papyrus, it is spelled P-A-P-Y-R-U-S. Papyrus, or papyrus rather, I should say, was widely used for a host of many things. In the case of the boats, the papyrus boats were um, made out of papyrus stalks tied together with rope. And these stalks were lightweight and because they were uh, lightweight and the boats in general were of lightweight, Egyptian uh, men, or just you know Egyptians in particular, could easily transport these boats over land. In other words, they didn't weigh a whole lot for Egyptians to even pick them up and carry them over their heads if they had to while uh, walking from point A to point B on land to get to uh, the nearest waterway access. But these papyrus boats were used primarily by fishermen catching fish along the Nile River. So they weren't being used for recreational use, folks. They were being used for commercial use. Could it be fair to say that the papyrus boats from 8,000 years ago might have been considered as the first form of commercial fishing vessels of their time. It's very likely. Over time, ancient Egyptian civilization would go about building bigger boats. But hey, they had to start somewhere. So whenever we think of um, the earliest known boats, let's always remember who deserves the credit. Ancient Egyptians or ancient Egypt civilization. 
course, when I think of ancient, Egypt, ancient Egyptian civilization, there is one thing that always came to my mind, the Great Pyramids. And why not? But now there are two things that can come to my mind. Number one, the Great Pyramids and, and the um, papyrus boats. Well, moving, um, moving forward well past 8,000 years ago, prior to the start of the 18th century, ships traveling around the world most notably from the 15th and well into the 17th century, these ships relied upon nature's forces. Okay, nature's forces, that, that seems pretty vague. Well, in this case, if ships are going to need to rely upon nature's forces during the 15th and into the 17th century, which is a time um, that is referred to as the Age of Exploration, captains are going to have to rely upon um, such, such forces of nature being that of winds and currents. Why winds and currents? Well, folks, is it fair to say that uh, we didn't have any such thing as uh, diesel-powered uh, engines or, or uh, motor engines back then where all you would have to do is turn on an ignition and then you're good to go? We didn't have that. We weren't anywhere close to it. So, if you're going to get somewhere from point A to point B across um, bodies of water like oceans, you've got to have favorable winds. Without favorable winds, including a current, how are you going to get anywhere? And two, how would um, a European nation like England, France, or Spain be able to go about establishing a stronghold in what we now know as the New World, how would those nations be able to establish any kind of strongholds in North and South America, and, and fair to say even in uh, Central America, in the Caribbean, I should point out. So these, um, these forces, being that of winds and currents, helped determine the trade routes which also contributed towards European strongholds in the form of empires that would be established once arriving onto New World territory. Now, I don't live too far from uh, the historic triangle, as many of you have uh, heard me say before, uh, being Jamestown, Yorktown, Williamsburg. For those of you who uh, aren't familiar with uh, how the uh, English arrived to Jamestown, real quick, Matter of fact, when you go to Jamestown, when you step outside, right before you get to the um, um, Indian village, there is a huge map, and they're outside, and it tell, and the map pretty much has a um, a display of where the English left when departing England in December of 1606, and how they got to James, what we now know as Jamestown, Virginia. It wasn't a straight shot across the Atlantic Ocean. The winds took them in a southwesterly direction. As a matter of fact, they actually intended on going southwesterly or southwest. By going southwest, uh, the ships being the, um, the Godspeed, the Susan Constant, and the Discovery ended up... Um, ended up... Um, in the uh, Canary Islands or around the, in the Caribbean, 
This was done so as a means of resupplying, resupplying on essential uh, goods and provisions. And then once they had finished uh, resupplying in the uh, Caribbean, most notably around the uh, Canary Islands, they sailed northward past Bermuda and eventually into uh, Cape Charles around the southern uh, tip of Virginia's eastern shore before um, making their way into what we now know as uh, what they would call Jamestown. So they... Um, the English, like the French and the Spanish, were very favorable. They had to rely upon the winds and the currents. But just remember, when the English came to um, what we now know as Virginia, present-day Jamestown, it wasn't a straight shot across the Atlantic Ocean. They went in a southwesterly uh, direction, thanks in part to the winds and the currents. But had they not done that, there is a likelihood that perhaps... Um, more men's, more people's lives might have been lost. And the, and the reason I say that is because only one man lost his life out of a hundred and, um, out of 110 men, I want to say it was on th all three ships total. Only one man lost his life and he died, um, in the Canary Islands, uh, it's somewhere in the Caribbean where they resupplied. Think about it. And in 1606, 1607, it took them about four and a half months to get to, um, to uh, Virginia, but um, if it makes you all feel any, I don't know if better is the right word, they, um, the ships were, um, were stuck in the, um, in the downs of England, and the reason I know this is because it, they, were, they were forced to stay there for about six weeks because they could not get any kind of favorable wind that would um, get them moving on their, um, on their, uh, on their uh, desired um, course. So think about it, folks. There was a time when if you didn't get the right wind, that you were uh, pretty much stuck somewhere, not just for a couple of days, but probably for at least three to five weeks. And let's just keep in mind that um, not everyone had access to their own shower or bathroom below. There were no such things as that. So can you imagine being alive in the 17th century and for many of these captains, they had done these voyages more than once. But just the average person. But, but then again, these people coming over weren't, weren't strangers to um, sea travel. But just all the sacrifices that were being made. Well, the Europeans did establish uh, strongholds in the form of empires. But... In order to get to the New World, what would they have had to have relied upon, folks? During the time of the Age of Exploration from the 15th into the 17th century, nature's forces being winds and currents. The United States has never been a stranger with regards to boats and their significance from the days of establishing first European settlements into present-day times. Although the United States won its independence from England on the battlefield during the Revolutionary War, including having to go through um, what was uh, treaty negotiations, being the 1783 Treaty of Paris, which officially ended the American Revolutionary War, not uh, the Siege of Yorktown, and I'll mention that uh, again here momentarily, 
And yes, the United States did win its independence from England, not only on the battlefield, but through the 1783 Treaty of Paris. The young nation still faced its share of um, issues, and there's no question about that. One in particular, though, in my opinion, has uh, great significance in terms of a, a pressing issue that uh, does have uh, relevance to the uh, series that we will be discussing. It involves land, western territories, land that is west of the 13 colonies, or what we now think of as states, whom did successfully go about officially declaring their separation from England in July 1776. But, but there is so much more to America than uh, what exists along the East Coast or what we think of as the Eastern Seaboard. Even those who came to Virginia in 1607 were convinced that Virginia went all the way west to the Pacific Ocean. And many of them were convinced that they were able to find a um, trade route that would take them all the way to China. That's how convinced they were, folks. Too often people have assumed that when British General Lord Charles Cornwallis surrendered to General George Washington on October the 19th of 1781, ending the siege of Yorktown, Virginia, that all other outstanding matters between the two nations had come to an, an official end. Well, folks, uh, I wished I could say that the uh, that when uh, General Lord Charles Cornwallis surrendered to General George Washington on October the 19th of 1781, I wish I could say that all outstanding matters, all existing matters that were still outstanding between the nations, I, I would like to say that they all just came to an abrupt end. Well, the answer is no. It, it's not true period. Yes, it was one thing for, uh, General Lord Char for General Lord Charles Cornwallis to have surrendered at Yorktown, but even his surrender alone did not mean that British troops still had presence elsewhere in America. There still remained a presence of British troop forces in Charleston, South Carolina, and as far north as New York City. And if that wasn't enough of a problem... How about there being an assortment of military posts that um, consisted of British um, regiments from as far west as the Ohio Territory, including the Great Lakes to the Lake Champlain region of New York State? Lake Champlain, folks, in New York State, um, is that north of Albany or uh, west of Albany? Albany's the state capital of New York. It's north of Albany. And uh, Lake Champlain, um, you know, it's it borders, there's the New York side of Lake Champlain, and there's the Vermont side. And Champlain, New York, is not far from the New York, um, from the U.S.-Canada line. So, yes, folks, there um, still remains, even in uh, 1781, even after the Siege of Yorktown, British troop forces, not only as far south as Charleston, South Carolina, and as far north as New York City, but you have British troops 
or British troop um, garrisons or just an assembly of British troops or units uh, stationed in various uh, posts from Ohio, from the Ohio Territory, Great Lakes to Lake Champlain. So many of you are wondering, what in the world would it take to formally request that these um, British military units leave American soil, considering that they have lost <laughs> this war? Well, it would take the 1783 Treaty of Paris, which formally ended existing issues with regards to the Revolutionary War. And one of the um, agreements that Britain um, went about, um, went about um, going forward with was that uh, the British in the uh, treaty agreed to um, see to it that British troops withdrew from posts along the Ohio Territory, Great Lakes, and Lake Champlain regions. The removal of these troops in those regions now meant that the United States had greater freedom to pursue a westward expansion. However, I will point out, though, that there still will remain a presence of British troops, most notably in Canada, on the Great Lakes side um, that um, goes into Canada, because there are... Um, there are four out of five Great Lakes folks that go into Canada. Superior, Huron, Erie, Ontario. Which one, folks? Which one of the five Great Lakes doesn't go into Canada? Michigan. So it would be fair to say that the United States government would not have to worry about any British troop presence along Lake Michigan, and while, yes, they are leaving the American side, they still have to contend with the fact that the British do have possession of the country being America's neighbor to the north, Canada, which also means that there will still be a presence of British troops along the Great Lakes, the Canadian side, to four of the five Great Lakes. Now, yes, British troops have uh, with, will be withdrawing from uh, the Ohio Territory, Great Lakes, Lake Champlain regions on the American sides. This now means that the United States has greater freedom to pursue westward expansion past the Appalachian Mountains. Why are the Appalachian Mountains important, folks? Well, let's go back to uh, 1763. And the reason I say that is because um, after around seven, come 1763 and after, there, a proclamation had been issued in the aftermath of the British uh, defeating uh, the French and the Indians in that infamous Seven Years' War, a.k.a. French and Indian War. The proclamation of 1763 prohibited all white settlers, that is, American white settlers, from going west of the Appalachian Mountains to establish new permanent settlements. Well, the British uh, claimed to be looking after their subjects' uh, wishes and concerns, but after uh, defeating the French, most notably in areas where the French had already um, had um, territory, most notably along the Ohio Valley and into uh, the Great Lakes region, 
because the French have been defeated, now all that's in Britain's possession. And Britain knows that if they're going to retain this possession, the possession of all this territory, who do they need to have as their allies? The Indians. So think about along the Ohio Territory, or the Ohio Valley at that time, you've got um, nations like Shawnee, Delaware, Creek, not Creek, but um, Mingo. You've got um, other nations like the Pontiac, Huron, just to name a few of uh, Indians, uh, Sock, Fox. Think about it. Indian nations that would encompass what we now know as the Northwest Territory, the present-day states of Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, Illinois, Wisconsin. The British need to have these Indian nations as their allies. After all, now, with the proclamation in place prohibiting white settlers from not only just expanding their uh, territory, not from venturing westward past the Appalachian Mountains, the British are now protecting the Indians from further settler encroachments along the frontier. But come 1783, things have changed 20 years later. The U.S. will now acquire land west of Pennsylvania. Thanks to the 1783 Paris Treaty, the U.S. not only acquires land west of Pennsylvania, meaning, you know, Ohio, for example, the, the United States also acquires land northwest of the Ohio River and east of the Mississippi River below the Great Lakes. This is huge. The post-Revolutionary War era saw many of the 13 states turn over their share of land claims to the United States government. Why would they do that? Well, I'll get to that here momentarily, but the states that that turned over the greatest number of uh, land claims were Massachusetts, Connecticut, and none other than Virginia. I could see Virginia because she's the largest of the 13 states. Remember, folks, Virginia's territory goes all the way to Ohio, into the Great Lakes, goes into what we now know as Tennessee, Kentucky, present-day West Virginia, these states that I just mentioned, they turned over their land claims to the U.S. government. And then you have a, a Virginian named Thomas Jefferson who proposed a, a land ordinance in 1784 that became the first guideline proposal of territory for how it would be administered into individual states. So it's one thing now for the, um, for the new United States government to be acquiring territory but how do you go about shaping what you have of territory and carving it into states? States that would one day um, not only just be added into the Union, but states that would, um, in some instances, be uh, determined on the grounds of whether they would uh, be slave states or free states. So the actions by the part of uh, state, including national leaders, as to how uh, territory would be uh, set up in the newly created United States following the uh, Treaty of Paris, 
The actions on the part of state and national leaders helped persuade the Confederation Congress. Remember, folks, Confederation Congress? Uh, the reason why it's a Confederation Congress, because it's operating under a, under a different kind of government called the Articles of Confederation. You know, the Articles of Confederation don't exist anymore. It's probably a good thing. But at the time, it's what worked, or at least what some, at least it's what most people thought worked, but there were those who came to their senses and realized that this is no longer relevant because of um, rebellions that were taking place between the mid and late 1780s. But thank heavens we have enough leaders that help persuade this Confederation Congress to enact an organic act establishing a territory. An organic act is one that establishes a territory of the United States, and not just a territory by itself, but how the territory itself was to be governed. This took place on July 13, 1787. What else do you think is going on? It, it takes place, it starts taking place in May of 1787, but what else is going on even as we are in the middle of July 1787? A constitutional convention in Philadelphia, folks. So, on July 13, 1787, the Northwest Ordinance was created, establishing the Northwest Territory. It became America's first organized incorporated territory, meaning that the Northwest Territory would one day go about carving out states like Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, Illinois, Wisconsin. And I should point out that when um, delegates convened in Philadelphia to, to do something as radical as what was done 11 years earlier in 1776 by, um, by declaring separation from England, the bigger question in 1787 was once uh, the framers all agreed upon the new, um, not just the document itself, but, but what the government would um, be called, Benjamin Franklin said the following, or said something that averts to the following, it's a republic. As he told one person outside um, who was anxious to know about what had gone on inside uh, Philadelphia's uh, state, um, assembly Hall. Benjamin Franklin said to the individual, it's a republic, but it's up to you all as to how as to whether or not you all can keep it. Well, I will say that America in 1787 underwent a major overhaul politically as her existing government under the Articles of Confederation had failed to preserve unity between the national government and the states. And for some of you who are wondering, how was it that the Articles of Confederation failed so badly? Well, 13 states, 13 separate entities, 13 different forms of currency, 13 different policies, 13 ways of going about running government. And anything that the, that the national government above tried to do, the states screamed left and right chastising this national government, 
seeing everything that the national government stood for was a violation of, um, of power. You know, yes, everybody was very fearful of just how much power one entity alone could have. But the problem was that under this fledgling Articles of Confederation, one of the problems was that there was no proper balance, or let alone a proper system of checks and balances. So in order to have an effective government, the framers of our Constitution knew that there had to be multiple branches of government, but that neither one of them, neither one of those branches could overpower the other. So yes, America in 1787 did undergo major a major overhaul and yes this uh, major overhaul was much needed because if america didn't get it right in 1787 then the united states as we know it would have collapsed gone into anarchy Rebellions, most notably Shays' Rebellion, was an uprising amongst the farmers whom, in western Massachusetts who knew that the courts had the power to close their, foreclose on their homes, seize their property. The farmers, led by, well, it was more than just Mr. Daniel Shays, but the reason why Daniel Shays was the main target um, for those of you who were with me when we talked about uh, Shays' Rebellion, the American Revolution's uh, final battle last summer, Daniel Shays was an officer in the American Revolutionary War, and he was a good officer. The Marquis de La, uh, He was presented with a sword uh, from the Marquis de Lafayette. Mr. Shays uh, was struggling financially to where he ended up um, selling his sword to pay off debts. And there were those in the Continental Army who um, saw Shays' actions as something traitorous. So they needed someone, um, in their eyes, to blame for part of the greater mess, and so they chose uh, Daniel Shays as that scapegoat. But Shays' rebellion was, was, was alarming enough to where... Um, Farmers in western Massachusetts had closed a couple of uh, courthouses. And by closing a couple of courthouses, government, even on a local level, was not able to function. It alarmed men like George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, John Jay, just to name a few uh, prominent uh, men. Washington knew right away after Shays' rebellion that if nothing was done, Anytime soon in the future, not only would there be anarchy, but there would be no government that could uh, preserve order on a national scale level. So because of Shays' rebellion, that's when um, men like Washington, Hamilton, Madison, Jay, uh, and some others came together and realized that, look, we've got to... Um, we've got to convene. We've got to uh, call upon a new convention to reform the Articles of Confederation, in a worst-case scenario, scrap it all together, because if we don't do this now and get it right in the future, there will be no America. So, thank heavens that we had people at the right place at the right time to, um, to make the necessary reforms. And I'm sure some of you all are wondering now, why, what would government reform, along with boats, 
What in the world could those two things have in common? Well, I'm going to get to that here momentarily. How ironic, though, that um, that while um, delegates from 12 states assembled inside Philadelphia's State Assembly House to discuss reforming America's government, I'm sure some of you are wondering, there are 13 states, why are, why are only delegates from 12 states there? Well, long story short, uh, Rhode Island didn't send any delegates. Uh, Rhode Island uh, chose to be very uh, selfish about the whole, um, what do you call it, the whole issue on um, government reform. Rhode Island still wanted to operate under the Articles of Confederation. And Rhode Island did eventually ratify the Constitution, but not until 1790. So let's just put it this way. Rhode Island took their sweet time while everyone else got on the uh, wagon and chose to do something about making um, America better off uh, going forward than it was under that previous uh, government, being the Articles of Confederation. But while uh, delegates from 12 states are assembling inside Philadelphia's State Assembly House to discuss reforming America's government, a new era for boating, folks. Okay, we're back on track here now. A new era for boating began at the same time when a fellow named uh, Mr. John Fitch performed a steamboat voyage along the Delaware River come August the 22nd of 1787, which was achieved, and he had um, something unique. There were uh, members from the Constitutional Convention present on site to watch this um, historic feat take place. So is it likely that we're going to be talking about Mr. John Fitch? Is he the main person behind this book series? Well, I'll tell you this much. John Fitch will be discussed a great deal in this book series, but he's actually not the primary person whom we will be uh, discussing whose name is mentioned in the title to the book. Okay, so if it's not John Fitch, who will it be? Well, I'll get to that here momentarily. While... Um, America's uh, government achieved enormous reforms from, 17, from the 1787 Constitutional Convention that still remain intact to this day. The nation's quest behind advanced transportation was beginning to take route. Many of America's forefathers, most notably George Washington, knew if America were to become a powerhouse, she would need a transportation system that went beyond just roads considering that so many of the roads before and after the American Revolutionary War ended, many of America's roads were not what I would call first-class roads. They were dirt roads. Of course, people didn't know any better back then, but these roads were not uh, equipped. They, what would they have not been equipped for? to handle shipments that would have contained large cargo supplies, or what we call large shipments carrying vast quantities of goods. You know, standard horse and buggy might carry just a couple of, um, a couple of things, but we're talking um, well past, um, say, a couple of pounds worth of goods. 
So if America was going to succeed in the sense of uh, inland waterways, because that's what George Washington was preaching, inland waterways, if America was going to succeed in terms of going through inland waterways, it would mean that many inventors and entrepreneurs would have to spend great amounts of time solving um, the existing hurdles pertaining most notably with uh, propulsion. What is propulsion? It's the act of moving forward, or in this case with a boat, an object going forward, which in this particular story we'll be discussing being about commercial steamboats. Going forward is one thing, but getting to the exact moment of success, as we will be studying in this series, won't be without twists and turns, most notably as forces of nature, like winds and tides, stand in mankind's way behind the quest for waterway revolution. Twenty years after America or rather I should say 20 years after America's leaders ditched the Articles of Confederation and replaced it with something far more relevant, which still remains intact almost 235 years later, a revolutionary technological breakthrough along New York's Hudson River occurred in the summer of 1807. Prior to 1807, mankind, most notably men from Europe and America, had tried relentlessly in transporting ships along vast riverfronts while battling Mother Nature's forces, only to come up short. But one American man, being an engineer and inventor, solved previous hurdles where his strokes of fortune enabled the world's first commercial steamboat to travel on the Hudson River, that is, New York's Hudson River, transporting passengers each way from New York City to Albany, and vice versa. In the summer of 1807, a fellow by the name of Mr. Robert Fulton, I'm sure most of you know of who Robert Fulton is, but for those of you who don't know about him, this will be your chance, as we uh, will be discussing, and I'll go ahead and just tell it to you all now, our next book is none other than the following. The Fire of His Genius, Robert Fulton and the American Dream by Kirkpatrick Sale. In the summer of 1807, Robert Fulton made history where he began operating the world's first commercialized steamboat system, which, which to so many people, including Fulton himself, had become a triumph where technology prevailed over nature. I could see how, after so many other people had failed and came up short, that Robert Fulton's giant step in the right direction to so many um, others was seen as a triumph. Because, yes, nature does have barriers, or I should say boundaries. Is that a bad thing? No. Um, history has uh, shown to us that um, man has been ignorant when it comes to um, not respecting nature. The most um, 
I would say the most prevalent example I could give to man's disrespect for nature was on the night of April 15, 1912. There have been many other bad examples, but probably the most famous one was on the night of April 15, 1912. Royal White Star Liner, HRMS Titanic. She had been given multiple warnings along the North Atlantic Ocean that she was going to be encountering an ice field and that icebergs were drifting um, into um, waters along the um, North Atlantic that uh, were usually um, unheard of. Apparently it had been a more milder winter and more icebergs were, um, were, uh, were retreating into, um, into currents where, where, um, or into the maritime uh, currents where ships were uh, frequently uh, navigating. Well, the Titanic received many warnings, failed to adhere to them, and by the time she uh, turned uh, starboard to the left, it was too late. It took two and a half hours for the ship to sink. Historians now know, even maritime historians now know, that had the ship hit the iceberg straight on, then only two of her watertight bulkhead compartments would have uh, flooded, but the ship would have stayed afloat and help eventually would have come where 1500 some people's lives would never have been lost so yes it's one thing for um it's one thing to have a triumph but for technology to be seen as a triumph over nature Mankind better be careful as to how far he pushes his buttons or his limits because without limits, man is susceptible to doing things that are not only just unbecoming but will yield um, outcomes that have uh, consequences that are dire both short and long term. So not, lo not long after Robert Fulton's uh, initial immediate success along the Hudson River's along the Hudson River's waterways, did people begin pursuing loftier goals, or I should say ambitions, that meant going beyond the eastern seaboard, but also allowing mankind to control his own destiny, where steamboats could transport people and goods to places that weren't accessible years before, including in times of transitioning from war to peace. Most notably, when I think of transitioning from war to peace, how about when the uh, French and Indian War ended? You know, Britain now clamping down on Americans and not allowing her own subjects, being people of her 13 colonies, to go westward past the um, Appalachian Mountains. For all the excitement and promise which steamboats lived up to, Fulton's, Robert Fulton's grand envision of an American dream would produce consequences from harming nature as a whole to destroying ancestral Indian civilizations along the Mississippi uh, River Valley. The steamboat in 1807 was one large step for mankind, but Robert Fulton's quest for progress revolved from within the fire of his own mind. Progress, folks, is a work of art unto itself, but even progress must have its checks and balances. 
without checks and balances, progress alone can go um, unchecked to the point where um, where one sector of of the greater society will be um, greatly um, impacted by benefiting from uh, from the overall rewards that the progress attained by an invention, most notably in this case being a steamboat, would benefit one sector of society. But progress in terms of expanding into territory or uncharted waters where ancestral people whom have already laid a stake or laid claims to territory that have been a part of their um, of their family's uh, history for countless generations now all of a sudden becomes um, impacted. Progress enriches people's hopes for the future and yet progress also destroys what's left of um, of keeping uh, civilization separate. That is keeping out the, um, protecting the old and keeping the new from coming in. This is a paradox onto itself that we will be uh, discussing in this uh, book series. But keep in mind, one man, one grand envision, one man being Mr. Robert Fulton, a grand envision of expanding the United States, expanding the United States through means of steamboats, Steamboats transporting people and commerce, goods to places that never uh, were explored before or never had been established, all because of advances in technology and all because all due to that fire of his genius, the fire of his genius being his brilliancy, his ambitions, brilliancy along with lofty ambitions. There's potential. But potential alone must be checked. Without potential being checked, those ambitions no, have no ending in sight. Well, I look forward to being back on the air again next. And when I'm on the air ne again next, we're going to actually talk, we're going to start talking um, about 1807. Now, I'm sure many of you all are wondering, why are we going to all of a sudden talk about 1807 when we should be uh, talking about Fulton's earlier years. Well, in order to understand the past, we will need to know more about the exact moment of time in which uh, this grand revolutionary um, movement or event that, that takes place in the summer of 1807, how it evolved and why it was so um, revolutionary for its time. Well, thank you uh, for your time as always, and I look forward to being on the air again soon. And uh, thank you once again to all my faithful 101 uh, podcast listeners. Uh, without you all, I don't know where I would be. So uh, take care for now and stay safe.